Welcome to this week's Middle East Weekly, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. This week we are joined by Anna Boots, Blair Big, Nick Norberg, Mariam Ghanem, and myself, Mohamed Saleh. On this week's episode, Mariam will provide a general overview of the Egyptian presidential elections. And then Nick will update us on the Syrian government's offensive in eastern Ghouta, as well as Turkey's operations in Syria's north. To start, we're going to discuss this week's Egyptian elections. Maryam, can you please fill us in? So to no one's surprise, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi is basically the winner of the elections. He is, online reports say that he won about 90% of the votes, and Musa Mustafa Musa, his opponent, received only 2 or 3% of the votes. 7% of the votes were invalidated or spoiled because they were either people who wrote in candidates other than al-Sisi or Musa, or just faulty faulty submissions. The overall turnout was said to be about 40%, which is much less than the first Egyptian election, Sisi's first election, which was 47%. So the Egyptian media has been covering this pretty positively and saying that it was a fair election, whereas the foreign, foreign media outlets have been pointing to how completely fake these elections were. And I think that the voter turnout is a reflection of what the Egyptian people feel about these elections and and the candidate. And it kind of illustrates that they understand what's going on and and they're not fooled by Sisi's campaign. And is the popular sentiment directed at Sisi a result of uh, the general Egyptian population not caring about what's happening at the executive level, or is it because of a desire for stability? I think it also depends on generation. Like some older people are probably thinking, you know, we want stability, we don't want to go back to any, any Muslim Brotherhood rule or any other type of rule, they just want it to maintain what's going on right now. Whereas I think a lot of the younger generations are just fed up with the system. I think after the revolution, everyone just feels like there's really no use and that their voices are not taken into account. Also, the government has been extremely repressive. So even if people wanted to vote for the other candidate, they would feel like they would be putting themselves in danger, which is another thing that that younger people have to take into consideration now. Thank you. And moving on, this week, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman visited the United States on a tour during which he's going to meet or he will meet with uh, public uh, intellectuals, tech uh, executives and a wider range of luminaries with the hope of shifting Saudi public image. Blair, can you please fill us in? Yeah, I mean, as you said, Prince Mohammed bin Salman is currently in the midst of a two-week tour of the United States. Um, and I think the overarching goals of this trip are really to cement his own image and a progressive reformer um, in the Arab world. Um, and he's really also concerned with the U.S. perception of Saudi's role in Yemen has, and has been trying to do a lot of damage control around that. And I think his the leaked itinerary of his trip really shows a desire to forge a better relationship with the American public. On the itinerary, it shows that he is meeting with Oprah, um, which (laughs) Oprah has frequently been a gauge of public opinion in the United States. And so I think his meeting with her is really trying to garner approval of the greater American public. He's also, I mean, he's, he's meeting with a lot of the expected figures in the United States. He's meeting with a lot of politicians like Henry Kissinger, Barack Obama, the Clintons. But he's also meeting with a lot of tech leaders, which I think that's really closely related to Saudi's future investment initiative and the desire to kind of establish a lot of connections with Silicon Valley. 
and to get more American investment in Saudi's tech industry. And on the journalism side, um, The Independent, which published his leaked itinerary, mentioned he's meeting with Thomas Friedman, who wrote the prominent profile of him a few months ago, back in November, Rupert Murdoch, Jeffrey Goldberg, and has interviews with the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, Time Magazine, and Vanity Fair. So he's really making a plug to speak to Americans all over the country and plug his image. And so Nick, also, did you want to talk about his more formal efforts to shape American public opinion and his relationship with McKinsey? I mean, just as a quick addition, it's just interesting to note that this is something that Mohammed bin Salman is taking taking on personally now. His attempt to, it, it seems that he's kind of taking on this project of Saudi Arabia's public image as, as a very, you know, personal part of his agenda. It's a shift from the kingdom's previous policy, which involved contracting in companies. McKinsey was one of the companies that uh, that had the uh, largest contract with Saudi's public sector to try and reform their public image, not just in the U.S., but globally. They, you know, perceived that they were drawing a lot of negative press from all over the world, really, for their coverage, for their handling of the Yemen crisis. And it's a project that has had mixed results. So it's interesting to see the Crown Prince, you know, really take the lead on this himself at this point. It's also interesting and kind of timely news that while he was here last week, Congress was trying to pass a bill to end U.S. support to Saudi in the war in Yemen. That bill failed, but I think that kind of shows that the U.S. is starting to grow a bit frustrated with Saudi's continued efforts in Yemen. And I think that's a big reason why he's here right now, because even U.S. politicians and leaders are starting to become frustrated with the humanitarian crisis and with Saudi's continued role in in the war in Yemen. And why do you think that it's so important for him to win over American public opinion through the media and through entertainment figures rather than focusing just on policymakers and legislators? I mean, we have upcoming elections. Midterm elections are coming up in the United States. And I think he realizes that the American public's perception could sway which leaders are elected to Congress and could impact continued U.S. support for Saudi. So I think that's probably a big part of it. And also, I think... He wants the coverage of Saudi and the United States Mm -hmm. to be positive as well. Um, And it's also important for, like I said earlier, the tech investment to have in Saudi is important for those leaders to have a positive image of Saudi and the role in Yemen. Just to add to that as well, I think it's really important um, for uh, to note that he's that Mohammed bin Salman is really embracing this soft this soft power approach to Saudi's you know diplomatic presence on the world stage. He's attempting. I think he's somebody who sees Saudi Arabia as being an activist power in not only in the region but also the world. Um, he's a very young man. Um, and he will be in charge of Saudi Arabia for a very long time. So I think he's trying to do as much as he can to extend Saudi Arabia's influence now while he still has time to take risks, while he's still a little bit insulated by not you know, truly being the king in name yet. Uh, he still kind of has room to maneuver a little bit here, but it's also going to be very important, as Blair said, maintaining a, a positive image of Saudi Arabia in the U.S. will certainly, you know, make it easier for him to realize their ambitious goals for the Vision 2030 project, which is going to require retracting Amer- uh, attracting American business. 
What is the relationship like between Trump and, and MBS specifically? By, by all accounts, they have a very close working relationship, and it's a very positive one. There's been a lot of coverage of Mohammed bin Salman's relationship with Jared Kushner. After his uh, under-publicized visit to Riyadh last year, the two of them apparently allegedly got on very well and had a very close working relationship, and they allegedly stayed up together all night plotting. Uh, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's kind of a... Uh, we, we a saw terrifying image. A terrifying image. <laughs> we saw we saw the we saw the chumminess pop back up in uh, Trump's meeting with Mohammed bin Salman. He was kind of showing off the portfolio of American weaponry that Saudi Arabia was uh, positioned to purchase. And yeah, I mean, it's a very personal kind of diplomacy that both the Trump family and the Saudi royal family are very comfortable with. I mean, it's they're they're very accustomed to conducting their diplomacy through personal relationships rather than through institutions. Uh, Although bin Salman was reported saying that he has Jared Kushner in his pocket. So I wonder to what extent the coverage of their relationship is actually affecting it negatively, or if Jared Kushner is so over his head with the, the tasks assigned to him by his father-in-law that he doesn't seem to care. Yeah, Jared's got it all on his plate. He's a, he's a busy man. And now that he's report, lost his security clearance, he's probably going to have a difficult time fulfilling some of those responsibilities. <laughs> It is worth it is worth noting that Trump can the president Trump can choose to declassify any information he can since he's the president he can choose to give any information he wants to Jared Kushner but once he does that it's important to note that that information is then declassified so there's potentially a risk there if he gives away too much that more information could be passed on than the government should be comfortable with which is only slightly better than him tweeting it <laughs> And now moving on to Syria. Nick, can you please tell us about what's happened over the last week, both in eastern Ghouta and in northern Syria with Turkey's renewed aggression? Sure. It's been a pretty busy week in Syria, as always. The Assad government has been closing in on eastern Ghouta, which is a uh, collection of towns in the countryside around Damascus. It's been an area where rebel fighters have been pretty deeply embedded since the outset of the civil war, and it's been a place that has been pretty continuously targeted by Syrian government operations, but it's been one that has proved very difficult for the Syrian government to reestablish control over, despite being so close to Damascus. The Syrian government is now quite close to achieving full control over eastern Ulta after negotiating the evacuation of most of the uh, fighters, uh, most of the rebel groups that are still there. The only one that's remaining is Jaysh al-Islam, which is notably supported by Saudi Arabia and uh, is holding out in the city of Douma. They have been in negotiations with Russian forces who've been crucial to uh, to the Syrian government's success in eastern Ghouta. The operation has drawn a lot of fire from international media for flagrantly violating ceasefires and for disregarding human rights. Chemical weapons use has become, uh, has kind of popped up again in eastern Ghouta as the government makes its final push to try and, uh, you know, force fighters out of there. But it's, it's also displaced several thousand more civilians. It, uh, and it's prompted some comparisons to battle for Aleppo when Aleppo fell last year. But it's Jaysh al-Islam, as you said, is the only group that is still holding out. But we're pretty confident that the Syrian government now controls about 80% of eastern Ghouta. And Jaysh al-Islam can only hold on for so long. So it seems only a matter of time before Duma falls as well. In the country's north, uh, I'll just give a quick run through of Turkish operations in Afrin as well. The situation in Afrin has spiraled <laughs> to the point where uh, Turkish government 
forces have announced their complete control over Afrin, and they've announced their intention to continue on to the city of Telurifad, which is in Aleppo government. And they say that once the Turkish military uh, secures Telurifad, they will have completed their uh, Operation Olive Branch, which aims to push Kurdish fighters and ISIS fighters out of northern Syria, out of Afrin province specifically. They control the city of Afrin fully. There have been accusations of looting against Turkish forces and uh, Free Syrian Army fighters who are cooperating with Turkish forces and who are assisting them in the operation. Turkey has promised to investigate these looting claims, although it's kind of unclear what they're going to do about that. And there's some concern that in the coming months we may start to see Turkey using its control over Afrin to resettle displaced Syrians, whether or not they came from Afrin in the first place. This brings to mind Assad's claim at the beginning of the civil war that he will not stop until every inch of Syrian territory returns Mm -hmm. to the government's control, or control over every inch of Syrian territory returns to the government. Is a direct conflict between Turkey and the Syrian government I don't think so. At this point, Turkey has really shifted their policy. Turkey's policy for most of the Syrian civil war has been unequivocally insisting on regime change in Damascus. They seem to have abandoned that approach since their rapprochement with Russia, who is the primary backer of the Assad regime. So there there was some concern that deployment of Kurdish troops associated with Assad's forces entering Afrin could spark more of a conflict between Turkey and Assad. There was actually a Turkish airstrike that killed around 37, I believe, Syrian government troops last week. However, uh, it seems that a conflict between the two of them is not imminent. I mean, it might happen, obviously, but... uh, it doesn't seem like it's coming in the near future. Turkey continually has insisted that their operations are to secure territorial integrity of Syria. Whether or not Turkish troops remain behind after the operation is completed to provide security or to assist Syrian government forces still remains kind of unclear, but at least Turkey's stated intention is to guarantee the territorial integrity of Syria on behalf of Damascus, and that uh, their their stated objective is to work is to cooperate with Damascus at this point, so long as the operations target you know forces fighters that Turkey identifies as a threat. Hey, thanks everyone. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Middle East Weekly, a podcast brought to you by the editors of the Journal of Middle Eastern Politics and Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at HJMAP, as well as on our website, jmap.hkspublications.org.